Maybe you learned about them in intro psych. The Janine quadruplets. Four genetically identical siblings whose mental health symptomology led to supposedly groundbreaking research on schizophrenia, and which revolutionized the way we asked questions about genetics, environment, and nature versus nurture. But what if there was a much deeper, darker side to this story? One that even your beloved intro psych teacher never told you. Today we're talking with Audrey Claire Farley, author of the brand new book, Girls and Their Monsters, The Janine Quadruplets and the Making of Madness in America. The story of the four identical quadruplets whose lives captivated mid-century America and became a classic case study in the field of psychology. Well, some things are not as they seem. If you're up for a discussion that turns a lot of things upside down, you'll want to join us for today's Baggage Check. Welcome. I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this is Baggage Check, mental health talk and advice, with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. I am so glad that you are here today for this one. Baggage Check, I must remind you, is not a show about luggage or travel. Incidentally, it is also not a show about the history of mustache wax. So let's get to it. Today, I've got Audrey Claire Farley, whose book, Girls and Their Monsters, The Janine Quadruplets and the Making of Madness in America, is brand new, as of hours ago, really. And I was so excited to sit down with her because of the case of the Janine Quadruplets being one that virtually every psych student is introduced to, at least the psych students who are not scrolling through TikTok while in class. And it's typically presented in a pretty straightforward way. It raises questions about nature versus nurture. It allows us to have a window into the development of schizophrenia. Well, it turns out the case of these women, and one of them, Sarah, is still alive and was interviewed by Audrey for her book, which she talks about in today's episode. Anyway, this case has something to say far beyond mental illness, far beyond psychology far beyond nature versus nurture. This case has actually a lot to say about trauma, about abuse, about cultural expectations, about ideas of racial and sexual purity, about the very nature of what we do to human beings who are in the public eye. I was fascinated in talking with Audrey about all of these things and then some. So I'm just going to let us get right to it. But I do want to give a little programming note before I do so. There are some very mature themes in this episode, including a frank discussion of abuse and sexual behavior. So please be mindful of yourselves and anyone else who might be listening. Without further ado, here's our show for today. Well, Audrey, it's a delight to have you on Baggage Check today. Thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. So I was totally intrigued when I first heard about your book, because the case of the Janine quadruplets, and I understand that was a pseudonym, that was not their real name, has been something that has been in psychology, studied, taught about for a very long time. And I've touched on it in my classes in relatively superficial ways. Hey, how remarkable is this? There were four women who were identical 
quadruplets, which, especially in the mid-20th century, to have identical quadruplets was basically a spectacle. But then, as the story went, they all suffered in some way from schizophrenic-type symptoms. So that's kind of the outline that I think is always kind of passed down through intro psych types of classes and the like, and what this might mean about genetics, what the, how we can study these women, and certainly they were studied. And then your book came along, and it became very clear much like often any cases of mental illness that are put out in academia for decades, there was a lot more to the story. So I was so excited to get this. Can I ask what got you down this path? Mm -hmm. What got you interested in studying these mm -hmm. women? Well, actually, I need to credit my mother who was reading Bob Kolker's book, Hidden Valley Road, a few years ago, which is about another family, many of the children, I think six of 12 were diagnosed as schizophrenic. And there was a brief mention to the quadruplets in that book. And she said, there's this fascinating little anecdote. It should be your next book. And I didn't really think it was that interesting, but I Googled them. And the first story that I came across is one that Patrick Hahn wrote for Mad in America. And he described their case as being one of total scientific ineptitude because they had suffered from a very abusive childhood. I mean, they really grew up in a house of horrors, but they were studied at NIH and their psychologists concluded that they had inherited some bad genes. Um, they couldn't name them at that time, but the theory was they'd been predisposed to mental illness by virtue of heredity. And that theory alone really angered Patrick Hahn and others who thought that it downplayed their abuse. And certainly as the researchers at NIH over time would bring them back for follow-up studies, and I chronicle this in the book, the focus did really shift away from nurture to nature. So by the 1990s, when scientists were following up with them, they were looking at their brains, they were taking blood tests and barely asking any questions about what was going on in their lives. Isn't that fascinating and how our culture shifts mm -hmm. between what we think of nature, what we think of mm -hmm. nurture, which one is most important. And I'm always talking to my students about how you can't separate the two, first of mm -hmm. all, that there is no nature being expressed without an environment. Right. And environmental forces are always acting on existing genetics. So there's no big black Sharpie mm -hmm. line drawn between the two of them. But there are so many swings mm -hmm. of the cultural pendulum mm -hmm. in terms of how we think about that. Yes. Where is it now, would you think? Because the 90s, it was going way back to, let's look at their brains and their neurotransmitters and their lobes. Where are we 20 years later, 30 years later mm -hmm. from that? Well, you know, I was surprised to find a lot of psychiatrists who really do believe in this multifactorial explanation for schizophrenia. I think that one of the mm -hmm. things that turned me off about some of psychiatry's critics is that they were making straw men 
of people like David Rosenthal, who wrote the book about the quads in the 1960s. He didn't discount the horrible childhood that these girls had had. Yes, he believed that they were genetically predisposed to mental illness, but he wrote extensively about you know their childhood. And there was also, by the way, a lot about the schizophrenogenic mother, which blinded researchers. You know, I, I was happy to find and to interview people for the book that psychiatry wasn't quite as myopic mm-hmm. as some of the lore about the Janine suggests. Yes. Yes. And for our listeners, can you talk a bit about the schizophrenogenic yeah. mother yes. and yes. Right. <laughs> how that has been such a foundational yeah. idea yeah. in some ways yeah. of early understandings of psychosis? Yeah. yeah. Well, can I give a little bit of background about the quads? Okay, because it will help the concept Mm -hmm. to resonate. Yeah. So the quads uh, were born in 1930, and they were instantly a sensation. And the public really laid claim to them and had this really dark fascination with them. Their father made their home into a kind of prison where he always had the blinds drawn and he would patrol the house at night with shotgun. He claimed to be very worried about the girl's virtue. And so, you know, they weren't allowed to go on dates. Of course, sometimes he would feel them up and say that he was only gauging how they'd react on dates when older. Um, So he is the primary person that was tormenting them. When they get to NIH, The researchers there, many of whom are not geneticists, but psychologists, social workers, sociologists, they are so much enthralled by this theory of the schizophrenogenic mother, which basically posits that mothers drive their children crazy with this confusing mixture of warmth and hostility. So a mother might say she loves you, but then you go to hug her and she kind of flinches and that's confusing. And so the child's wondering, does she love me? Does she not love me? And that confusion leads to paranoia and then eventually, you know, psychosis. And they are so much in the grip of this theory that even when they're presented with someone like the quadruplet's father, who is sexually molestive, physically abused one of the girls, the one that he disliked the most, would hold her head underwater and and much worse, scrutinize the mother instead. Mm -hmm. And they begin to hyperfixate on the mom's communication styles and the way she talks to the quads. And she's not perfect in this story, Mm -hmm. but it was truly astounding to me that they could possibly think she was primarily to blame. Right. That's a dissertation on gender studies right there, (laughs) right? I mean, thinking about what was hiding in plain sight in terms of the father's behavior Mm -hmm. and how easy it was to either not attune Mm -hmm. to that, to not take that into account, to ignore it, to not be bothered by it, to not think it was severe, because the prevailing theory at the time, and and let's be clear, Mm -hmm. this was the prevailing theory at the time in academic circles as well. It's not like, oh, lay people were thinking this. The prevailing theory was that, of course, it came from the mother. Mm -hmm. And 
not only perhaps even in a genetic way, but of course it came from the mother in terms of behavior, some sort of fault, some sort of flaw, some sort of not being warm enough so consistently. And of course, that has been refuted, certainly. But what a lens to be looking at these four young women through at that time. It really is, it should be shocking, I guess. But at the time, it was anything but shocking. Of course, that's how it was going to happen. And they even blamed the father's mother for his problems. (laughs) So there you go. <laughs> right. So it was the quads mom's fault that they were the way they were. Yes. And it was his mother's fault that he was the way he was. And they totally downgraded his abuses. They would refer to them as quirks and oddities. And so it's just this total softening of of his male violence. And maybe there was some sort of idea that the their growing sexuality as young women was such a threat that, of course, a father needs to be protective of this in some way, even though it's in a completely abusive and dysfunctional and disturbed way. Mm-hmm. This threat of sexuality of young women. I know you, t- you touch on that in the book as well, this notion of how we viewed young women, how we viewed young girls, societal messages, and some of the paradoxes of how we objectify girls, but also they're the villains in terms of sexuality. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it was many women at NIH. Mm-hmm. It was women social mm-hmm. workers, women psychologists. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. That was just the prevailing idea at the time. So around what time did NIH get involved, or specifically more NIMH, the National Institutes of Mental Health? And at what point did the quadruplets become an object of study Mm -hmm. for them? Mm -hmm. So they were born in 1930, and it was in the early 1950s that they started to suffer from symptoms. By Mm -hmm. 1954, NIH had received word about them. And actually the lead Mm -hmm. researcher, David Rosenthal, who's a big character in the book, was still at Johns Hopkins at the time. And he was the one who learned about their case and referred it to NIMH. And then he was brought on board for the studies. So at that time, in 1954, there was a scientific director there, Seymour Ketty, who went on to you know, be a huge celebrated name, who was really hired to bring more scientific credibility to NIMH, which was founded with a lot of the mission of social psychiatry, but mm-hmm. like improving the world so that people are suffering less mentally. But there was always this anxiety that NIMH needed to like be scientifically rigorous, like the other branches of NIH that were studying cancer and disease. And so they brought Ketty on board to give it that scientific legitimacy. And he really believed that mental illness could be better understood by studying the brain and further that twins could prove fruitful in better understanding the brain Uh, and mental illness. So there were these twin studies that were about to be underway. So to think that they're embarking on this study, and then they get word that there are four girls identical Mm -hmm. who have been diagnosed with schizophrenia was just 
unbelievable to them. Um, they, th they knew they were never, ever going to have such an opportunity for study. And I feel like that's a constant theme throughout early, well, I shouldn't even say early psych research, but 20th century psych research is, wow, we've got this holy grail from a methodological standpoint. We've got these identical quadruplets, or in the case of uh, some other tragic cases, we've got triplets. Let's see what happens if they're in different families. Mm -hmm. and, and that's been covered in the documentary, Three Identical Strangers. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes the researchers are so impassioned and excited about what seems like the perfect scientific setup mm -hmm. for the study that it's very easy to lose sight of the fact that there are human beings mm -hmm. involved. And of course, in medical research, we've, we've seen this time and time again. Is that a fair assessment of what was going on there? That I'm sure it's not black and white, that I'm sure it's not that all the researchers were losing the sense of humanity of the young women, but is that a fair assessment that perhaps they were always more prone to be seen as objects or medical marvels or research subjects rather than people? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think that certainly some people at NIMH treated them better than others. There were mm -hmm. at least 30 people assigned to study them while they were there, which was over the course of three years in the 1950s. And I think some of them really developed love for them. And mm. um, David Rosenthal was always so important to all of them. The only surviving quadruplet can't talk about him without glowing. He always meant something mm. to them. Um, I'll talk more about him and his tragedy if, you know, if we want. But well into the end of his life, he would call them, write them. They would write him letters. They would call him when they were really in despair. And I think that that friendship was real. It wasn't just a scientific relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but certainly, I could tell from reading the medical notes from NIMH, I got you know thousands of pages, the way people would just use uh, medicalese, the way that they would talk about the quadruplets in a really degrading way, made it clear that at least for some people there, they were seen as a prize that was going to advance their particular pet project. Right. Yeah. In those early stages of study, and obviously the study of them lasted a long time, what were some of the symptoms that they were most struggling with? I mean, again, as I've always understood it, there was a variety of levels of functioning among the four women. There was a variety of severity in terms of the psychosis. And for any of our listeners who aren't particularly familiar with schizophrenia and its symptomology, one of the main areas of symptomology is what we call psychotic symptoms. Of course, psychotic is such a loaded word in our culture, but what it truly means clinically is the presence of hallucinations, the presence of delusions, being out of touch with reality. And with schizophrenia, that's at the forefront. We, we see folks who are struggling to perceive the world in the way that it's actually happening. They might be 
feeling like they're influenced by voices out of their control. They might be, have delusions in the sense that they believe things that are very, very far afield from the actual sensory experiences that they're having in front of them. And of course, when you add in hallucinations, which are the sensory part, they can be so disruptive. And, and folks with schizophrenia endure some of the most terrifying experiences there are mentally because their brain is betraying them in terms of actually representing reality correctly. But can you talk a bit about for the four quadruplets, how did their symptoms vary? How did they start in those early years? What brought them to the attention of the researchers? Mm -hmm. Well, they all had hallucinations and often they would hallucinate about people who had harmed them, which is just so tragic. So for instance, shortly after three of them graduated, one did not graduate. Her parents took her out of school because she had been masturbating and they were very fearful that that would get out and reflect poorly on the family. It turned out actually that she was likely being abused by a school janitor, mm. but so three graduate, and those three went on to hold jobs in the local community. All three of them were assaulted in the workplace. And so um, in one case, the, a quadruplet had been attacked by a man wearing a brown suit. And so as she kind of you know, spiraled out of control, she would hallucinate a man in a brown suit. And another of the quadruplets was really demeaned by a boss of hers who would just really downgrade her. And so um, she would hear voices that were very fault-finding, just like her boss. And so it would certainly suggest that so much of their suffering is inspired by real trauma in their lives. Absolutely. Yeah. Because when we think about trauma and PTSD, a lot of times those intrusive symptoms, the flashbacks, the nightmares, the sheer terror that your body goes into mm -hmm. with the fight or flight response, it can start to look very similar mm -hmm. to delusional or even hallucination type behavior mm -hmm. and experiences. Mm -hmm. And so as this began to go on, was there an understanding that these quadruplets needed help in terms of these traumas, that it wasn't just a matter of studying and, and treating the psychosis as schizophrenia, but that some of the actual horrors that they had suffered at home, at the workplace, needed to be addressed as mm -hmm. well? Was, was there awareness of that? Was there an attempt at that? Well, Sarah, the quadruplet who had the best outcome, received hundreds of hours of psychotherapy at NIMH by a man named Seymour Perlin, who's still alive, I think living in your neck of the woods. And hmm. uh, I do believe that he had a very good sense of the trauma that she had endured. I don't know if he used the word trauma, but helped her to be comfortable in her body, which is something that mm, a lot of, mm -hmm. you know, victims of sexual abuse need to overcome the great sexual shame 
that she had. And so I think that, you know, he certainly understood what her needs were and helped her as evidenced Mm -hmm. by the fact that she was able to lead a relatively normal life. She was the only quadruplet who got married. She had two children, whereas Mm -hmm. the others were kind of in and out of state asylums after their time at NIH. I think, you know, it's hard to know how much effort was made at NIH to help them versus just study them. I think in the case of Helen, the quadruplet who was abused the most as a childhood, who was taken out of school, by the time she was at NIH, they described her as just being catatonic most of the time. Mm. Couldn't really be reached in psychotherapy. So, you know, I think, you know, probably a lot more could have been done for her than the other two. And it speaks to the fact there's something of a gradation there, right? Like there was help. Mm -hmm. Was it exactly the right help? Hard to say. At times it most certainly wasn't. There was an attempt at help. And it certainly seems like some of that help really was able to have a positive outcome. Mm -hmm. You going through all of these medical records and really digging deep as an author, figuring out how to make sense of this story, being able to really immerse yourself in these details. What was that like? Because I'm thinking some of these things are so profoundly tragic that it must have been an intense experience for you and an intense responsibility, too, to feel like you wanted to be able to tell these women's stories in a way that did them justice. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about your own process like that and, and how mentally that was for you? Mm-hmm. Well, when I first started working on the book, I actually had no idea that Sarah was still alive. And mm-hmm. so when I found out that she was alive, it felt like a huge opportunity, of course, because I wanted to reach out and talk to her, but it was like this huge weight descended on me. I could just like the felt responsibility was so much greater and the pressure to get the story right. It was only because of her, of course, that I was able to get the records from NIH. She had to sign off for them to send those to me. And really it was going through the records that I became sure that there was this whole other story within the story that wasn't being told which actually had a lot to do with race. So the quadruplet's father was a German immigrant whose mother told him that Germans were superior and he should marry someone with his own race because other nationalities were responsible for America's troubles. The quadruplets themselves had this like singing and dancing career where they would go on stage and sing these very patriotic and religious tunes, some of which contained racial slurs. Uh, They once Mm -hmm. opened for minstrel performers, so basically men in blackface, aboard this riverboat that was named Robert E. Lee. And those details really suggested to me that long before they had become the the poster girls of psychiatric genetics, that they were the poster girls of this other 
very potent mythology, which is this idea of white racial innocence. And, you know, that made it more understandable to me why this society could be so invested in what these girls represented. You know, these cute little Jean Benet girls that go up and sing about Christopher Columbus could be so interested in the symbolism of these girls and so uninterested in what was actually happening behind closed mm -hmm. doors. And then there was also the fact of their father and the nature of his obsession with mm -hmm. their purity. A lot of this came out actually in interviews with Sarah. Uh, she told me mm -hmm. that he really admired Hitler and he mm -hmm. wanted Hitler to come to the US and execute his same you know, program here in America. And it, wow. it seemed to me that a lot of his obsessions with their sexuality and keeping them pure were fueled in large part by his racial anxieties, which is totally of a piece with the times. I mean, this is the height of, you know, Jim Crow, too, right. um, which, right. you know, they're coming got, of age yeah. in 1950, 1954. Brown versus Board of Education is just about to happen. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And there's just this total anxiety among many white people that the black man's out to get your daughter. And mm -hmm. so you've got to keep her protected from this barbarous man. Mm -hmm. But it's a scam because, you know, once the quadruplets were abused, you know, the father yeah. did nothing about it. It didn't right. count. It didn't count because it was people in his circles. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's so fascinating that intersection of the ideas of purity, mm -hmm. right? Sexual purity, racial quote unquote purity as defined literally by Nazis. Mm -hmm. And how there's something there's something so fundamental in both of those that is so disturbed and so prone to harm mm -hmm. right so able to be weaponized so easily i mean that's so so striking to imagine meanwhile coming out of world war ii thinking about all of the american sentiment that in some ways was very pure about girls and the suburbs and let's have june cleaver mm -hmm. but also it was at that point, it was anti-fascist in, mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, we recognize that Hitler was a bad person and atrocities were absolutely unforgivable and the tragedy of the Holocaust was absolutely abominable. But then you've got this other guy mm -hmm. with German roots mm -hmm. who's just bringing that in. And there's similarities in how he was able to take that pro-American sentiment, which in a way should have been an anti-Nazi sentiment, but still it has some of those same threads. You and, know, here are these cute little girls yeah. talking about Christopher Columbus. Yeah. And you know, what really startled me was to learn that so many of the psychologists at NIMH had either gotten their start in the military, David Rosenthal actually had been drafted to fight in the war and worked under a psychiatrist there who professed to hate Nazis as much as he loved psychoanalysis. Robert Felix, who founded NIMH, was also a military psychiatrist. And then there were a lot of Jewish psychiatrists who had been forced to flee 
because of the war. So NIMH had a lot of Jewish figures, but just as they were unable to see the father, Carl's sexual abuse as being relevant to the development of the, the sister's problems, they were totally silent about this racial hatred that really consumed this man. I mean, he even suspected one of the Jewish psychiatrists, Perlin, Sarah's psychiatrist, of sleeping mm -hmm. with his wife. He had all kinds of conspiracies about the Jewish psychiatrists at NIMH. Oh my goodness. But there was just this this total silence about that. Um, and I think that there are, there are a few reasons for that, which I get into in the book. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of it, I believe, had to do with this perception that racism was political and politics mm -hmm. needs to be outside of science. So Interesting. even if you think that this guy is a bigot and a total nut, can't talk about that as relevant to his problems or to the quadruplets problems, because that's political. You need to keep it right. objective. And a lot of that mandate comes from Freud too, because he wanted psychoanalysis to be perceived as scientific. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. How was it talking to Sarah about not only this, but more generally, and, and how did Sarah view these aspects of her father? Obviously this is decades and decades later. Mm -hmm. What were those conversations like for you? Pretty wild. Well, she actually wrote a book in 2015 in her 80s where for the very first time she acknowledged that things weren't as blissful as people perceived. Mm -hmm. uh, she described mm -hmm. her father as being a tyrant, even though she really didn't get into the details of what had happened. And she described their life as being like birds in a gilded cage. And I, I thought that was so brave and courageous of her after all these years, decades really, of being yeah. made the icons of Americanness. That's another thing about purity culture is the little white girl body is a stand-in for the national body. Mm. And so there's just this huge psychic pressure, I think, on her and her sisters. So she had already acknowledged that there was you know, some trouble to her family. But even so, when I first talked to her, she wanted to focus on like their celebrity and like I could see her still wanting to put her best foot forward to focus on their accomplishments as stage dancers, the things that she was proud of. And over time, and it was a struggle for me, but I just tried to coax her to see that that was a caricature, which was flat and fake and nowhere near as lovable as the real her. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and I think that she was persuaded of that and, and did trust me about that. And also, actually, mm -hmm. I brought up the example of Shirley Temple, who's discussed in the book. Uh, the mm -hmm. quadruplets adored Shirley Temple. They mm -hmm. made scrapbooks of her 
and they would go see her movies. Some of their costumes were made to resemble costumes that Shirley Temple had worn. And I showed her, you know, she too really suffered behind the scenes. There's a gulf between what happens and what a person's lived experience is and this story that the media spins. And that story that the media spins does violence to people. Yes. And when you imagine there's so many parallels to to today, but also things might be even more magnified today because you are not just on the cover of a magazine. You are in everyone's pockets with millions of people looking at a video of you just walking down the street, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. so intensified the media glare. So Sarah did end up having a family. Was she, was she able to experience being loved in that way that you so hoped for her? Was she able to be valued as the person, do you think, mm-hmm. with the family that, that she built and, and mm-hmm. somewhat escaped this identity of only being a symbol of Mm -hmm. mental illness? Mm -hmm. Well, she married a man who was a lot like her father in some ways. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, he did drink a lot. He struggled with that. And he was gone a lot because he was out with his drinking buddies. He was also in the military. So they did end up divorcing after, I'd say, about 20 years. But she had two sons with him. One of them died quite tragically of AIDS. He had been working in a carnival and had two of his fingers severed and had to go to the hospital and get a blood transfusion. Soon after that was diagnosed with HIV. So they they did believe that it was related to the transfusion. Um, And of course, back then the blood wasn't screened. And Mm -hmm. so he died in the 90s. But her other son is an angel. And they have a really close relationship. He Mm -hmm. takes such good care of her. He's the one that put me in touch with her. And when I go out there to visit him, I stay at his house. And seeing the love between them, I could finally rest assured that she had gotten her happy ending. Um, And so that, I think, is kind of the light at the end of the tunnel of the book. For sure. Mm -hmm. For sure. What was the relationship like between her and her sisters towards the end of their lives, Mm -hmm. towards the end of the other sisters' lives? Did it vary across the four of them? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, at NIMH, when she really started to turn corner, she had a lot of survivor's guilt because she knew that her sisters might never be able to get well with her. She's told me herself, I was so sad they couldn't keep up with me. And Mm -hmm. after they left the Institute, she went to a halfway house in Bethesda, Woodley House, which is still around. And the other three were transferred to an asylum in Michigan. And then Sarah, you know, met her husband, got married. There was one sister, Edna, who had been the closest with Sarah growing up. 
and they'd always been rivals. Mm -hmm. So now that mm -hmm. Sarah had a husband and babies, Edna really, really struggled. And her mom at one point said, well, if you go back to NIMH, you can get well like Sarah did. And mm -hmm. so she went back to NIMH and even started attending church where Sarah had met her husband. She was trying to imitate Sarah and get her own happy ending. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that there was always some jealousy and some bitterness between the sisters. When Sarah had one of her babies, Edna claimed, as twins often do, that she had labor pains herself. So, you know, she mm. was struck with stomach pains, hadn't yet known her sister was in labor. Um, wow. And then as soon as she got the call that the baby had born, got up and walked off fine. Like they, she believed that she could feel her pain. So I think that, you know, to answer your question, there was always tension, but love between them. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, the other two, Wilma and Helen died first. And for many years, it was just Edna and Sarah again, and, and they were able to grow close in the in their elder years. Mm -hmm. In some ways, it's such a universal story of siblings, right? I mean, truly, you have such, mm -hmm. such strange circumstances, such completely atypical circumstances to have four identical quadruplets to have what happened with them it was you know one in a billion types of situations and yet some of these themes of jealousy but closeness mm -hmm. but resentment they're so mm -hmm. universal in what we see oh absolutely among siblings mm -hmm. yeah yeah how do you think their story overall should inform research on mental health as we do it going forward? I mean, what can we take from this? There's so much there. There's so much shame, rightfully so, I think, about aspects of this story and what was missed at the time and, and basically the injustices that were inflicted upon these women. How do we make mm -hmm. sense of that now? and apply it? How do we become people who can take something from this and do better? I think that there can't be silence about race and the way that both race and racism are what Hannah Zeven calls central nodes of the psyche. Even in somebody mm -hmm. who's not a Nazi, like the father. Mm-hmm. Race shapes how you conceive of yourself and the world. I mean, these sisters living under a man who is obsessed with segregation and the Third Reich were made to fear that somebody was always out to get them and that they needed mm -hmm. the protection of a white man. The very people mm -hmm. who were prone to hurt them. You know, to, to put it plainly, they were inducted into the logic of lynching, you know, in that they were taught that they were prey for somebody and they needed to submit to another man in order to be protected. That silence about race by NIMH and really everyone who's remarked on the case has not served them. Mm -hmm. And I think that even talking more frankly about 
race would help the way that trauma therapists help people after sexual assault, right? Like mm -hmm. a lot of people who are sexually assaulted have guilt, they have shame. I wonder in a case like the quadruplets, how much is that guilt and shame compounded by the fact that you are really a stand-in for the nation, right? Mm -hmm. Like your body is a metaphor for the national body, which needs to mm -hmm. be kept pure. It just seemed to me like that was completely absent from all of the commentary on the quadruplets, both beginning in the 1950s to even today. The other thing, which we haven't really talked about yet, is religious trauma. Religious trauma mm -hmm. studies is emerging as more of a serious discipline. I think a lot of people who grew up in the Christian right of the 1980s and 90s have come of age and they're therapists now. And mm -hmm. they know that religion can get under the skin mm -hmm. and that things like purity culture, which is very reminiscent of the quadruplets, you know, the, the 1990s with these chastity pledges, same thing. All these girls, mostly white, gather at the National Mall. That kind of culture can be really devastating for people. And in fact, one of the trauma therapists who studied in the book, Laura Anderson, who helped to found the Religious Trauma Institute, has found in her research that girls who survived purity culture have the same symptoms as people who survived sexual, material sexual abuse. It's so interesting. It's not particularly surprising when you really think about it. And you think about the question of autonomy. Do I own my own body? Do I have a right to decide what happens to it? Or is someone else in control and telling me what I can and cannot do, or actually inflicting harm on me in their way? And they're all different types of harm, right? Mm -hmm. And the other scary thing that really seems to be a parallel between then and now in terms of this is the notion of the support and respect for the institution, whatever it might be, mm -hmm. whether it's the religious institution or the governmental or scientific institution and how within that so easily there can be things hiding that are quite insidious but are unseen or at least ignored because the institution mm -hmm. is the big thing and the institution needs to be protected rather than the actual people that are being inflicted harm by the institution being protected and needing protection. I was going to say, you know, the priest who baptized me was just named in the Attorney General of Maryland's report on sexual abuse within the Archdiocese of Baltimore. Oh. Um, he molested so many girls over the decades and was really only outed now as he's got like one foot in the grave. You know, he'll probably never be prosecuted uh, and he'll die. Um, but, you know, growing so sorry up... sorry to hear that. Yeah. Growing up, you know, there's these same narratives about who the predators are, which really help to foster a culture of abuse. You know, in the case of Catholic mm -hmm. priests, it was oh, these gay people are infiltrating seminaries, which shuts down dialogue about clericalism mm -hmm. and about the church and, and its theology. But it's the same, the same scapegoating 
as when the quadruplets right. were young. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, obviously the groomer panic too, right? <laughs> you focus on, mm-hmm. you know, these gay school teachers. People don't really want to talk about the fact that it's fathers, it's brothers, it's familiar mm-hmm. people. Yeah. I mean, we very much seem to be in the midst of a culture that wants to scapegoat those known as other and create fear centered around those who are other, whether it's ethnicity, Mm -hmm. whether it's sexual orientation, gender identity, whatever Mm -hmm. it might be. And that's exactly what was happening in this notion (laughs) of the the fear-based racism that was being spurred on Mm -hmm. back when the Janine quadruplets were being paraded around as the symbols of purity who needed to be protected from any non-white, non-quote-unquote American influence. Mm -hmm. It's striking. And it's just so sick. It's so sick that they were made to participate in that charade. Like girls Mm -hmm. who were being abused were made to go on stage and perform a little show that designated other people as predators. They were made to participate right. in the very charade that that was obscuring their own abuse. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And as you drew parallels to now, you can imagine some of the ways that that happens. And the parading is not just on stages with people sitting in folding chairs. It's Mm -hmm. the parading on social media, the parading of the way that kids and young women can be held up as examples of whatever movement people are trying to put forth as influencers, right? It's, oh, Mm-hmm. Well, there's so much there. There's so much yeah. there. And really for you to have been able to tell these stories in such a human, compassionate, but also really objective way, I think it's remarkable because there are so many threads here that it's really not a story just by any means about these four women, although they are the heart and soul of it. It's a story mm-hmm. about society. It's a story Mm -hmm. about mental illness as it's perceived by others. It's a story Mm -hmm. about racism. It's a story about abuse and being a survivor. And I just know that many listeners are going to want to dig in. So tell us where they can find your book. Tell us how to go about following your work going forward. So the book is at all the usual places, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, course, indie booksellers would love your business. And I'll be making stops in Baltimore, Harrisburg, and Westminster in the Maryland area. And people can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Audrey C. Farley. Wonderful. Well, congratulations on the book launch. I know that that's (laughs) something huge. I once said, it's a cross between Christmas and a colonoscopy, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you got that's the perfect way to put it. <laughs> There's, uh, it's intense, to say the least. But I yeah. so appreciate you having taken the time today. I'm so glad we got to speak. So thank you again, Audrey. Thank you. I really appreciated this. Thanks for joining me today. Once again, I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this has been Baggage Check, with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Join us on Instagram at Baggage Check Podcast. Give us your take and opinions on topics and guests. 
And you know you've got that friend who listens to like 17 podcasts. We'd love it if you told them where to find us. Our original music is by Jordan Cooper, cover art by Daniel Marity, and my studio security, it's Buster the Dog. Until next time, take good care.